Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by my very good friend, Bennett Freeman and Allison Gill, both of the Cotton Campaign. Bennett is a leader in promoting human rights and sustainable development. He's a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, and he's a co-founder of the Cotton Campaign. Allison is a prominent human rights lawyer. She's a forced labor program director at Global Labor Justice and is a member of the steering committee of the Cotton Campaign. And we're here today to talk about their work at the Cotton Campaign, a movement that was instrumental in advocating for the end of forced and child labor in Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan's cotton industries. Thank you both for being here. I'm so glad to have you. Allison, let me start with you. Allison, what is the Cotton Campaign? Thanks, Tim. We're really excited to be here. The Cotton Campaign is a broad coalition of human rights NGOs, labor rights NGOs, independent trade unions, socially responsible investors, academic partners, and others who came together around the issue of forced and child labor in Uzbekistan starting in late 2007. And we have worked together really in lockstep to advocate using a variety of advocacy tools, including political efforts, diplomacy, economic pressure, campaigning, and other kinds of work to advocate for an end to forced and child labor in Uzbekistan. And a couple of years ago, we shifted our focus to include Turkmenistan as well. How serious a problem was this issue of forced and child labor in Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan? When we started looking at Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan was running the largest state-imposed forced labor system in the world. The uh-huh. annual cotton harvest in, force in Uzbekistan involves somewhere between 1.75 and 2.5 million cotton pickers every year. It's also the largest seasonal agricultural recruitment effort anywhere on the planet. At its peak, the forced labor system had over a million people in forced labor, adults in forced labor. When we started this work, Schools throughout the country would be closed in the fall for up to two months with children as young as 10 years old picking cotton for several months with their teachers. Kids in education all the way up through university level were picking cotton. After the government started phasing out child labor, they really shifted to include more adults in forced labor. Again, at its peak, we estimated over a million people a year were in forced labor. Oh, my word. But Bennett, this wasn't the first time you took on a big challenge like this in your career. There's been a series of very complicated, multi-dimensional, multi-stakeholder problems that require a multi-stakeholder solution. This is not your first rodeo, if you will, in kind of confronting some of these things. So maybe bring some of that experience to this discussion and then tell us a little bit about how you see the situation in cotton. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. My own experience with multi-stakeholder initiatives began when I was still at the State Department in the latter part of the Clinton administration, and I used the department's convening of power to bring together the largest U.S. and U.K. oil and mining companies together with major international human rights NGOs, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, 
to develop what became the global human rights standard for the extractive sectors, oil, gas, and mining, the voluntary principles of security and human rights. And that effort really demonstrated to me the utility and really the extraordinary credibility of multi-stakeholder approaches to human rights problems, labor issues. That particular initiative has survived and thrived now for over two decades. I also was a co-founder and longtime leader of the Global Network Initiative, which similarly brought together not governments in that case, but major internet service providers, later telecoms, international human rights NGOs, academic experts, and responsible investors to create the global standard for freedom of expression and right to privacy online. So you're right, it wasn't my first rodeo, but I'll tell you, the cotton campaign is really a unique animal. And what made us so unusual, really unique, I think, is the fact that from the very beginning, the international labor and human rights advocates and NGOs and trade unions mentioned by Allison, together with the responsible investors, at the time I was the co-founder on behalf of Calvert Investments, were joined by major apparel brands and their trade associations, the U.S.-based trade associations. So from beginning until end and to this day, the cotton campaign has been supported by major companies and industry associations. Now that is, if not literally unique, remains highly unusual. And that gave us extraordinary credibility and leverage to be able to go to the government of Uzbekistan to really demonstrate the economic power behind our demand and state mobilized forced labor and Uzbek cotton. So our strategy really relied on three legs from start to finish. First, and really most significantly, the courageous work of Uzbek human rights defenders, labor rights advocates, monitoring forced labor on the ground with tremendous threat to them personally, legally, even physically at times. The second peg was the economic pressure that we brought to bear with the brands supporting what we called the pledge. It was essentially a boycott, a compilation of pledges to not source Uzbek cotton until state-imposed forced labor had been ended. And that was put together over a couple of years and then really came to full effect in 2011 and remained in place until we announced it. Allison and I and two other colleagues of ours, one of our co-founders, uh, Patricia Jerowitz, and our new cotton campaign coordinator, Raluca Dumitrescu, announced the end of the boycott in Tashkent on March the 10th. And then the third pillar, if you will, of the strategy has been diplomatic engagement. We did engage with the government of Uzbekistan early on in 2008 and 9. That pretty much fell away in 2010. But that engagement resumed at a high level in early 2018 when the new president of Uzbekistan signaled clearly his commitment to ending the forced labor. So that then became the basis for delegation trips to Tashkent and meetings at the cabinet ministerial level with the government of Uzbekistan. So it was really the combination of the diplomatic engagement and the economic pressure through the boycott but all based fundamentally consistently on the brave 
courageous monitoring by our civil society partners on the ground that brought us to this historic conclusion of no more state-imposed forced labor in Uzbekistan. And I just have to be clear here, and Allison, no doubt, will pick it up and further in the conversation, but there are still fundamental human rights and labor rights problems and challenges to address in Uzbekistan. State-imposed forced labor is over now, but there's still pockets of, of forced labor visible, and there really is no freedom of association. The trade unions are not independent of the government, and the country uh, remains one where rule of law is not strong and human rights abuses still occur. So there's a lot to be done, and the cotton campaign is going to stay on the case, as you'll hear from Allison and more from me. So, so Allison, talk a little bit about where are we today? I mean, as Bennett said, this really is a landmark achievement. I think it is important to take stock and to take a moment to really celebrate where we are, which is that we can celebrate the end of state-imposed forced labor in Uzbekistan, which had affected you know, millions of people. In fact, I had a young guy come up to me who thanked us, who thanked me for having the pledge in place for so many years. He said that he'd lost months and months of education as a school kid, and then later through his college years, picking cotton every year. And only when he got to university did he get to stop picking cotton every fall, because by that point, the reforms had progressed such that university students were no longer sent out. That was a really moving moment to, to hear firsthand from somebody who had been affected. That being said, it's not all good news. There are still significant human rights and labor rights risks in the cotton production. I think Bennett, you know, stated the, the clearest one, and that is the lack of freedom of association. Freedom of association is both antidote and the vaccine for forced labor. You know, when workers are empowered to bargain collectively, come together to organize, they can really be free from forced labor and some of the worst exploitative practices. The reforms thus far have been really corporate-centered, really business-centered, very top-down, with much, much less emphasis on building capacity at the ground, building capacity among workers, or building systems that will allow any kind of independent monitoring or independent grievance or remedy. And so it's those are the kinds of things that we're looking at now, trying to continue to advocate for freedom of association and to try to help put into place some of these independent systems to help verify labor practices in cotton production. So, Bennett, could you talk about the role of governments and the multilateral organizations? I believe the ILO has played a role. The U.S. government has supported the cotton campaign's objectives and worked in parallel to the cotton campaign from beginning to end. And I really have to salute administrations of both parties. We founded the cotton campaign toward the end of the second Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. The first meetings of the, what became later called the cotton campaign were actually hosted by the State Department in 2008 in the last year, full year of the Bush administration. And then the Obama administration embraced the same objectives, hosted some meetings as well in 2009. We went through eight years of Obama and then through the following administration, where the support remained steadfast from not only the State Department, but also the Labor Department, specifically the International Labor Affairs Bureau. And we've had annual set-piece meetings with U.S. government officials from half a dozen agencies, including Homeland Security, Customs and Border Patrol, going back a dozen years now. So 
The U.S. government has been really in alignment here, and a couple of secretaries of state, including Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, met with the then president of Uzbekistan to raise these concerns very directly. So kudos to the U.S. government. Other governments uh, have been helpful as well, particularly through their ambassadors and embassies in Europe, uh, the EU, the UK, Germany, and others have been making the case to the government of Uzbekistan. The ILO has also played a critical role. In fact, it was the cotton campaign that first proposed in 2008 the government of Uzbekistan invite the ILO to come in and do monitoring and then long-term technical assistance. And that actually began to happen, I believe it was calendar year 2013. And the ILO has made a significant contribution over the years, first in ending child labor in cotton, and then in conducting the third-party monitoring program, which uh, complemented the monitoring by the labor advocates in alignment with the cotton campaign. So there have been significant efforts both by the U.S. and other governments, by the ILO, so national community. And it all goes back to what Allison you know, said a few minutes ago, which is why this problem focused such extraordinary international attention. It was the single greatest instance in the world of state-imposed forced labor on a truly massive scale, went back decades and persisted through the first quarter century of post-Soviet independence. Really extraordinary. So that's why we focused and that's why there were so many partners in the international community who contributed to this historic outcome. So Allison, talk about the private sector. It seems to me that folks who are sourcing cotton had a really important role to play in this process. Yeah, they sure did. We really, one of the centerpieces of our campaign has been the Cotton Pledge, which is the voluntary commitment by over 300 brands and retailers not to knowingly source Uzbek cotton until forced labor had ended. It was a sort of thorn in the side for the Uzbek government. It really made them unhappy to be seen as a kind of pariah, but it also had a direct economic impact Uzbekistan at the time was largely exporting ginned cotton, so big bales of cotton that would be sent to spinners. They weren't really doing much domestic processing. And we could see over time imports to spinning countries from Uzbekistan had dropped. So Bangladesh, which is a major spinning country, really reduced its imports of Uzbek cotton as a result of the pledge. That, I think, not only brought direct economic pressure and political pressure on the Uzbek government, It also raised awareness among brands. So what we're hearing now is that even many, many brands that weren't direct signatories of the pledge had adopted their own policies prohibiting the use of forced labor cotton, in particular Uzbek cotton. So, Allison, where do we go from here? That is the question. And I think we're at a really exciting time because over the years that we've been working on the cotton campaign, the requirements on businesses have changed. So if 10 years ago it was sufficient for businesses to say they wouldn't knowingly use inputs that are tainted with forced labor, today they actually have an emerging legal obligation to know their entire supply chain. And we can see that really clearly around what is happening in the Uyghur region, where the U.S. has just passed into federal legislation the requirement that don't import any goods made in whole or in part with Uyghur forced labor. A sort of voluntary commitment, a sort of low bar commitment not to knowingly source just isn't good enough anymore. Now brands have this tighter obligation. At the same time, Uzbekistan really has an opportunity to show that it can be a different kind of supply chain. 
They're doing a ton of domestic processing now. They really have an economic goal to create jobs and to create good jobs and to slowly move people from these temporary seasonal agricultural jobs into longer term manufacturing type jobs. And so they stopped exporting cotton and are doing all kinds of domestic processing up to finished goods production, although I think there's still a ways to go there. So for a brand now, they would have the opportunity actually to know their entire supply chain from the field, potentially all the way to finished goods. And they would have the ability to know the labor standards that were adhered to at every stage of production. That's a really exciting opportunity, I think, for Uzbek workers and for international buyers and consumers. What the challenge is to ensure that there are systems in place in Uzbekistan for companies that are producing cotton to be able to demonstrate their labor practices in an independent way. And so that is monitoring, it's access to credible grievance mechanisms and remedy, it's capacity building and worker empowerment for employees. And so we are working closely with partners in Uzbekistan to develop and hopefully pilot a framework that would do just that. So Bennett, you've been working with and advising companies for at least two decades and longer on ESG and CSR issues. Allison just said, sounds to me like the landscape has totally shifted, even you know from when you weren't gotten this business to now. And this issue of visibility on supply chains and the level of accountability for companies Could you talk a little bit about that and use the cotton example as as a way to kind of talk about this larger truth? Really a couple of uh, ways of addressing this new dimension, Dan. I mean, first, and Allison has really hit it on the head, is the real need now for the expectation for transparency and accountability in global supply chains when it comes to labor and human rights. You know, a lot of us have been involved in that struggle to establish those standards and practices for over two decades. Hundreds, thousands of people around the world, not to mention all the workers and trade unionists who've fought for decades and decades for just that. But we're now at a point where responsible sourcing is becoming more of a norm underpinned by the ILO core labor standards and and practices of multiple companies in different sectors, not least agriculture, but also apparel. So this is really the new expectation, the new reality. But there's another dimension here I think is particularly fascinating, actually relates also to the main focus of my own work more broadly the last four or five years, And that is multinational corporations emerging as advocates for labor rights, for human rights, for civic freedoms, and not just taking care of their own supply chains, which, of course, is their first responsibility, but advocating sometimes privately behind the scenes, sometimes very publicly with governments to protect labor rights, human rights, what I call the shared space of rule of law, accountable governance, civic freedoms freedom of assembly, freedom of association, uh, freedom of expression. And the cotton campaign really, I think, is one of the most remarkably successful efforts that has mobilized companies adhering to the pledge by boycotting Uzbek cotton, but by lending their voice, their credibility in meeting after meeting, privately and publicly with the government at the very top level of the government of Uzbekistan to make the case that these practices are unacceptable morally, legally, politically in the 21st century. And if you want to move forward with your domestic apparel industry and a reformed cotton sector and generate jobs for a new generation of Uzbeks, 
you've got to catch up with 21st century labor and human rights standards. But I think this is a growing trend, I hope a wave uh, that we're going to see more companies not only acting, which is most important, of course, uh, acting behind the scenes to their supply chains, but also lending their voice, their weight to labor and human rights and to civic freedoms and rule of law where they operate. Let me give you each a chance to kind of some parting thoughts about the cotton campaign. Allison, let me start with you and then I'll go to you, Bennett. Thanks. You a couple times referenced our work in Turkmenistan, and I don't want to leave that work unaddressed. Turkmenistan remains one of the most closed countries in the world. They also have a state-imposed forced labor system in cotton production. The scale is a little bit different only because the population size is different from Uzbekistan. There are over 30 million people in Uzbekistan. Turkmenistan has fewer than 6 million But it's a serious set of abuses. It's one that we're very concerned about. And we know that Turkmen cotton is making its way into global apparel supply chains. Unlike Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan is exporting cotton yarn, cotton products, not just ginned cotton bales. And so now with these new obligations on companies to trace and map their supply chains, we see a real opportunity to make headway on Turkmenistan. There were many years where we couldn't feel or see the progress on Uzbekistan. People told us it was impossible. People told us it was entrenched. People kind of told us to give up. I think the approach really proved itself. Working together with civil society partners, particularly civil society partners on the ground, together with a broad coalition of other stakeholders, and really not giving up is a way to make progress. It's a marathon, not a sprint, but I am confident that we will see progress on Turkmenistan as well. Thank you. Bennett, give us some closing thoughts about the cotton campaign and and some of the takeaways. I mean, the cotton campaign is a story of persistence, of perseverance uh, against the odds. And I can't emphasize enough the determination and the courage of our civil society partners on the ground who have risked so much to do the tough work of the monitoring. But I have to say that change happens when people place a bet. And if the odds are two to one against or five to one against or 10 to one against, those are the fights to take on. Maybe not the hundred to ones, but the odds were very, very stacked against us. And I have to say, going back, thinking back now to late 2007, 2008, you know, as a co-founder of what was called the Cotton Campaign only a couple of years later, it's just extraordinary to see the efforts to eliminate state-imposed forced labor. And they actually adopted and enacted much of We saw it not only in their PowerPoints, but more importantly, on the ground. And then who would have thought that after ending the pledge, after all these years, again, we did it on March 10th, 2022, just over a month ago, the cotton campaign now would be shifting our focus to actually trying to promote responsible sourcing in Uzbekistan on the part of the same brands that joined this boycott. But we're doing it in a way that will strengthen respect for labor rights, for human rights, it will empower workers. It will be difficult. It'll be challenging every step of the way. But sometimes change happens when people place bets, take risks, take the long view, then that's when the unexpected actually materializes. And I think that the Cotton Campaign is a story of uh, unexpected change emerging through a real commitment, a real persistence over so many years 
by so many people, not least and really most, foremost, our allies on the ground. And it's been our privilege to support and work with them. This is great. What an amazing story. I want to congratulate both of you. This was awesome. Thanks for making the time to be with us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 